0: Hi, my name is Yasmin Tarehi, and this is Gateways to Awakening, where we host one-on-one conversations with leading experts in wellness and spirituality. Today's episode is about the importance of astrology in the self, mythology, and women who run with the wolves. On today's show, I'm super excited to introduce our guest, Rebecca Farrar. She's known as the Wild Witch of the West, and she's a true master at her craft. She's an archetypal astrologer and wild woman living in the San Francisco Bay Area. Her work's been featured in Elle, Reader's Digest, Bustle, Astrology.com, and Elite Daily. She's offered astrology readings focused on the asteroids, dwarf planets, soul care, feminine archetypes, death psychology, and much more, which we'll get into into the show and she's also had quite the background. Uh, in 2013, she completed her MA in Philosophy, Cosmology and Consciousness, and her thesis titled Stargazing: Reenchantment Through Language. That combined linguistics, the evolution of consciousness, and the human relationship to the cosmos. I recently had a reading with Rebecca, and we focused a lot also on astro mapping, which is very new to me, since I wanted to know which cities were lit up in my own chart when looking at the entire globe, and it was just quite the adventure diving in. I learned more about my chart than ever before, and honestly, I have so many great links now to do my own deep dives from the conversation. So I'm super excited to introduce you guys to Rebecca. So, welcome, Rebecca, to the show.
1: Thank you. It's so good to be here. I I wasn't expecting a little like shout out to our session. That felt really good to hear.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it was really amazing. I mean, I've been talking to everyone I know about it. So, Rebecca, can you tell us about your essay, "Intimacy with the Self"? Um, You know, for those who. Can navigate to Wild, uh, I guess it's Wild Witch of the West, that's the website. Mm -hmm. You can find this essay called Intimacy with the Self. So, you know, Rebecca's not just an astrologer, but she's obviously a very contemplative and reflective person. And so that was really what first attracted me to her work. Um, And she has this really great quote that says uh, from Robert Otto. And he says, others can only offer you the depth of intimacy that they have with themselves. So why did you write this? And can you tell us a little bit more about this essay?
1: Yeah, I think I just feel really excited that that essay stood out to you. Um, I, I think it really came about a few years ago where, you know, I just, there's something about the way I want to be in the world where I just kept calling myself a lover, you know this and i think so much of that word gets really put on to like oh you're a lover with someone else or it's a romantic relationship and i just i wanted to be just like a lover of of everything and i was realizing that in order to be a lover right it's not just about being nice or having connection but it has so much to do with how can i show up for people when i don't feel really connected to myself um and so all of my kind of codependency and all of my people pleasing and all of these ways i was interacting I was just realizing that they were all symptoms of like, I couldn't really love other people in the way I wanted to, because there was just still so much of my own way of relating that felt unhealthy. Um, And so I think that really just sprang from this idea of like, how can I identify as someone who's, you know, a lover of people and life and the planet and animals and everything in it? and, you know, and not spend enough time, like really getting at my own junk and like really looking at the unpretty. And for me, that's, to me, that's what it means to be a lover is like really spending time with that grossness.
0: (laughs) Mm. And it's so important today because I think so many people are trying to numb out of that connection with themselves Mm -hmm. or like they turn to other people to create an intimacy with themselves. I mean, I think at the end of the day, we're all De- we, are, we all desire to become more connected with ourselves. And so I just thought that was so profound because anyone who is really introspective and reflective can then offer that level of intimacy to the other. So I just, you know, go check it out, by the way, before you do anything, check out this essay. It's really just profound. Um, I read it a couple times and I got something new every time I read it. Rebecca. Oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for writing it. Rebecca, can you tell us why you pursued astrology, why you wanted to um, master this craft? Why do you think it's so important? And also, why is it so misunderstood?
1: Uh, I always, yeah, I always love this question because... I used to just think astrology was really dumb. (laughs) Like, (laughs) I, you know, like, you know, I was really intellectual. You know, I was getting a master's degree in philosophy. You know, I've been like a TV reporter. Like, I just felt really identified with my, my intellectual, logical side. And so astrology felt like it was just this kind of new age spirituality that didn't really have a lot of grounding, um, was really oversimplified. And I think that's a lot of the astrology that you can see online today. It feels a bit like WebMD. (laughs) <laughs> where it makes you think something's wrong with your chart or there's something really wrong with you because of something in your chart. And so, a lot of times in my sessions, people will come to me and they're like, Oh my God, I read this thing. And, you know, it says that I'm like a terrible person or I'm like going to end up. One time someone's was like, I'm going to end up in jail because of this <laughs> it's like part of my chart. And so, I think so much of the joy that I get is like sitting with someone's chart and like really, you know, it's really romantic. You know, it's this like enchanting yourself with yourself. And looking at what are these parts of your soul that really are kind of what you came here to experience. And so for me, the reason why I love this craft so much is it's just, it's another tool for self-awareness, but it's also a way for me to like really connect to my place in the cosmos, because Mm -hmm. so much for me about being human has to do with, you know, this push pull between being an individual and being a part of the collective. And so the birth chart is this way to like find your, your identity and yourself within that big picture, not just other humans or other non-human animals, but like the whole cosmos.
0: Mm, Really beautiful. And Rebecca, you work with clients uh, by sharing an astrology reading and also offering astro mapping. And this is something that has been new to me. Maybe it's new to a, a lot of other people. And also your astrology reading feels very in-depth. Like it's not just, a, you know, talking about my sign. We, we spent, you know, an hour and a half together. So I would love for you to share, like, what does it mean to do an astrology reading um, and also astro mapping? And by the way, if you'd like to use me as, as an example um, and any of these questions, <laughs> (laughs) feel free to. (laughs) That's why I wanted to, I wanted to do the reading for multiple reasons, but one of them was to make it uh, tangible for our audience so they they can understand what does it mean? You know, what does it actually mean?
1: Yeah. I'm glad I, am glad I have that permission, you know, because I think that (laughs) for me, I don't take it lightly that someone's trusting me with their soul. You know, like I'm, (laughs) I'm looking at this blueprint and it, it never ceases to amaze me, especially when someone just finds me online. And they have no context. And I'm like, wow, like you're just trusting some weirdo from the internet with (laughs) like this, like who you are. Um, But yeah, for me, so much of that process is, you know, how do we just appreciate someone's complexity? And so for me, the complexity actually is really found in the planets. Um, This is something that really differentiates archetypal astrology, which is focused on the planetary archetypes from maybe more traditional astrology that focuses more on just the signs. You know, so when you read a horoscope and it's like, oh, you're a Taurus, you're going to have this type of day or whatever, I really try to get people away from thinking about themselves as these kind of like 12 zodiac boxes you can fit into. um, And instead looking at what are these planetary relationships in the chart and how do these patterns actually uniquely make you? Because that's what's different, right? Is that the moment you're born, what were these planets doing? That's going to be a lot more unique to you than just because you were born within the same 30 days as someone else. And so your sun sign is the same.
0: Mm, Yeah. So it's like each planet has like a specific archetype and a meaning behind each of these planets. And I thought, you know, the astro mapping piece was so interesting. I was wondering if you could also share a little bit about that because I, I actually like spoke to a lot of my friends about it and they really never heard of it before. And I just thought it was really profound. Um, and I don't know if you maybe want to share what came up in my chart. I, and I can also remind you because I know it was a couple of weeks ago and you'd probably do <laughs> ten,
1: 10 of these a day. <laughs> Well, I'm actually curious what stood out to you about the astro mapping portion. Yeah, well, I think if like, there was anything specific. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think like a lot
0: of people, um, you know, in this, like, are we in the post pandemic? We're kind of still in the pandemic world. Um, <laughs> you know, someone once said 2020 will be over when I say it's over. It's has not, it's not over yet because we're in 2021, <laughs> but it still feels like we're in 2020 some days. Um, But what stood out to me was that, you know, I lived in uh, Chicago, I grew up in Chicago, then I lived in New York for a long time, college grad school there, and then I moved out to the West Coast. And I felt like my uh, career and a lot of parts of my life started to really uh, change a lot once I moved out to the West Coast. And it was clear in my reading that um, you know the, there were a lot of planets that were lit up uh, on the west coast. And by the way, you can correct me if I'm saying this if I'm saying this incorrectly. But <laughs> the, a lot of planet lines were were lit up um, in Northern California. I live in San Francisco now, um, and it just really felt like there was a new. I, I feel different when I'm in certain cities and states and even countries. And so I just thought it was super profound to really understand the meaning behind that. You know, what is it, what does it feel like to actually have a career in the West coast versus the East coast? And I didn't have much Mm -hmm. lit up in New York, but I had a lot lit up in the West coast and especially Northern California. So that felt pretty, you know, spot on. And it was just interesting to learn which um, countries were lit up in Europe and the Middle East. And there's a lot Mm -hmm. of, you know, there's a lot of really interesting connections to my own, um, family lineage in the Middle East, like where, where, right. where the chart was lining up. So yeah, I just thought that was really profound. And I think for me, it, you know, I was considering a move out of California. And I think after that session, I, I'm just, I'm, there's still, it's still a consideration, but I'm now, you know, reflecting on the fact that it does feel like there's a lot going on for me in Northern California. Mm-hmm. So yeah.
1: No, I'm so glad that you mentioned those pieces because I, you know, astro mapping to me is just a, it's a tool, but in this tool, you're, you're taking, you're basically matching, you know, the latitude and longitude lines of the earth with the degrees of the zodiac. And so you're getting these points in these places where certain planets are just so strong. And I, I especially remember, yeah, all the interesting things happening for you and your family lineage and the West coast. Cause I do remember you talking about moving. And I remember not trying to convince you not to move, but kind of being in <laughs> this inquiry of like, you know, what do you want? And that for me is the big question of astro mapping is that you can live anywhere and be completely happy and be completely fine and live the life you want to live. But there are certain places where, yeah, you, things are just a little easier, um, or certain aspects of your life are just more of a focus. And so that can be kind of really gratifying to know, you know, like, yeah, if I want to focus on my career, this is a great place to go. If I'm really wanting to nurture my relationships, this is another place to go. Um, I do get people, you know, like, where do I go to meet a partner? And, um, I think that there's these questions of that astro mapping is a great tool, but it's not the end all be all. And a big part of that for me is also, you know, every, every place has its own kind of chart, right? It has Mm -hmm. its own energy. It has its own. And so where do we find the places where the energy of that place also meets the energy of your chart? Um, and I, that's not every time I use the word energy, it feels really generic and like kind of <laughs> new agey. But I mean, it's more of like a, a pattern yeah. um, that you can line up if that makes more sense. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I, and I think and I I when I was doing some research, I remember you you spoke about the planets and where they are kind of hitting the The United States and other parts of the world and what that means. So, and I can just give a brief example. I think you mentioned in the Midwest that Saturn was over it and that had a certain meaning, like, like each of these planets have an archetypal meaning. So I was wondering if you could share, you know, maybe Midwest, East coast and West coast, like what is, what are like the, the planets and the archetypal qualities of each of those planets?
1: Right, right. So that's a, yeah. I'm so glad you asked about, I feel like I am going to say that every five minutes. I'm so glad you asked about that because you're just such an intuitive question asker. I feel like you're, you're just like knowing exactly what would make sense to talk about. And that's why you do this. Um, oh, thank you. but there's this thing called, um, geodetics, which is different than astro cartography or astro mapping, but it's this idea that every location kind of goes through, it starts with kind of like the Greenwich line and that you go around the world and you kind of assign certain chunks of the Earth with different zodiac signs, um, and so the 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 East Coast of the United States tends to be like the Capricorn sign, which is which makes sense. It's like more, you know, more about status. It tends to be more focused on like authority, more traditional. Um, and then most of the United States, in particular, is ruled by Sagittarius, which is this energy of, you know, like big box stores and (laughs) farms and like big trucks and kind of this like go home or go big or go home mentality that for me is so much of kind of the shadow side of America, like consumption and wanting just like to have things. Um, and then where this shifts in America is actually when you hit, I think it's like Santa Barbara, where from there North, you get more of a Scorpio energy, which is so much more around like what are we uncovering? You know, what's really under the thing. So there is this place I feel when I go from Northern California to Southern California, I can almost feel where it switches, Mm. um, where things start to feel a little bit more like what's hidden under the surface a little bit more like esoteric. Um, you know, there's a lot more therapists in Northern California, which is very Scorpio, um, what's under the surface versus SoCal, that, you know, is maybe still kind of holding the energy of the rest of the U S it's a little bit more about like fame and Sagittarius is so much about being seen. Um, so those are, I think the the geodetic piece of it to me is also really fascinating because again, it's just like another layer of, of how location impacts your experience.
0: Wow. So interesting. What is uh, Europe? <laughs> if you out, if you know off the top of your head, and if you don't, we can skip a bit. Yeah, it.
1: Yeah, it's you know it varies by um, area in Europe. So I'm trying to think of where London. And so if we're going Capricorn, Sagittarius. I actually, from what I remember, it was kind of like the the far west side of Europe was definitely Sagittarius. Or no, no, sorry. What's before Sagittarius? Capricorn. We're going backwards. Sagittarius, Capricorn. I'd have to think about that. Got it. Okay. Um, I don't know that I can think off the top of my head. Oh, i have to do look at some of the angles of the latitude-longitude lines.
0: Okay. I'm sure that we'll get so many questions about that because I, I thought that was so fascinating. And, um, and then and what about like the planets over the coast? Because I remember hearing you say something about Pluto over the West Coast. Does that have anything to do with it or is that something separate?
1: Are you talking about the line in your map that we looked at having Pluto I
0: think so. Maybe that's, maybe that's what I was referring to because it's, it was something about shadow work and Pluto and.
1: Yeah. So I don't remember if we were talking about your chart or the geodetic one, but yeah, the Scorpio energy tends to be more about that shadow work. Okay. And I don't remember if you have a Scorpio or sorry, a Pluto line off the West coast or not. Okay. Well, um, I can, ch- I can check that. This, <laughs> this is all the places where I just don't know what I'm talking about. Apparently.
0: <laughs> no, this is, this is so, it's super interesting. Um, I mean, it makes a ton of sense because I think a lot of people who move to the Bay area, like all of the, most of the time they go through some serious dark nights of the soul and are interested in yeah. shadow work and introspection and inner child work where I don't, I didn't feel that way in other parts of the U S so. Um, and that feels true for a lot of my friends who moved from the East Coast or Midwest to the Bay Area, or even just northern, like I guess the north of uh, California, the same thing like Seattle and all those places. So super interesting. Yeah. Um, so, Rebecca, can you talk to us about what dwarf planets are and also the meaning behind an eclipse? Uh, as a representation of our shadow? Because I know that that came up as well in the reading. And it was the first time that I'd ever heard about dwarf planets. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So in, you know, in astrology, we obviously have all of these planets and with a visual eye up until only a few hundred years ago, we didn't know that there was anything past Saturn. You know, we didn't have the telescopes, we didn't have the technology. And so it used to be that Saturn was the end of the solar system. Um, and so then when other planets started to keep being discovered, we realized, okay, it's, you know, then we started to explore just to Pluto, but then, you know, technology kept getting better and better. And we realized, okay, there's so many other kind of planetary bodies in our solar system. And so, you know, dwarf planets are the ones that are out past Pluto. There's also an area called the TNOs or the trans Neptunian objects. Um, and so these are just planets that their size and their location, um, puts them in a different category. Mm. Um another example you know asteroids there's an entire asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter with over a million asteroids wow um and so when we think about the solar system and we look at astrology you know we tend to focus on just a few planets but i love in people's charts you know showing them these other planets that are kind of new to our consciousness and these asteroids that are also new to our consciousness mm. um and so the kind of the representation of what they mean in our minds May not be as clear yet in some ways because we haven't maybe come into contact them, into contact with them as often. Um, but yeah, for me, the dwarf planets are like, what's this other world past Pluto <laughs> of all these other orbiting bodies that no one talks about, and there's there's <laughs> quite a few of them.
0: So fascinating, yeah. I feel like asteroids are, are like a reminder to the human species of the vastness of the universe, and to like help mm-hmm. remind us that we are not just these you know, we, that we're not just on earth, that we're part of this like massive global or massive ecosystem. Um, so
1: I thought that yeah, was so interesting. I agree because oh. they're close to us, you know, I mean, the asteroids aren't as far out as Pluto. They're like just a few, you know, just a few, whatever, several million light years away. but <laughs> it's still, you know, the asteroid belt is close and you're right. It's like this whole, it's like a whole party happening between Mars and Jupiter that oftentimes we just don't even think about. Mm.
0: Yeah. So powerful. Uh, Rebecca, can you also talk a little bit about the meaning behind an eclipse as a representation of our shadow? Cause I, I know that that, um, is a link that I think you sent me, but I just thought that was very interesting. Like, what does it mean to be an eclipse season? Um, you know, and especially I think as it relates to, you know, Carl Young has talked a little bit about the shadow. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. So eclipse seasons, you know, people, I think, especially as astrology has become more popular, you know, people take almost every astrological thing and make it really big. (laughs) Um, It always seems like something really big and dangerous is happening in the sky, like another retrograde or another, you know, and retrogrades are happening all the time. Um, We're just not maybe as aware of them as we used to be, um, or we are now. But yeah, so for me, what's interesting about eclipses is they happen in cycles. So you know, there's several, usually in like March and then six months later, like in the fall, we have these eclipse seasons. And so they often, whenever there's a solar eclipse, there's also a lunar eclipse. That's just kind of and so it ranges depending on the year, whether we have, you know, like six or seven or four or five. Um, but I tend to see these as just phases where you know, if you think about what an eclipse is, it's where the sun or the moon is going in front of another luminary, right? It's going in front of another source of light in the sky. Um, in astrology, we tend to think of, we call the moon a luminary, you know, cause it does, even though it's reflecting light, it's also giving it, it's giving it off in that reflection. Um, and so when these luminaries kind of cross paths, um, you know, there's, they're casting a shadow on one another, Mm -hmm. And for me, this always symbolizes like, what, what were we missing before? What were we not seeing? And how does the unconscious come into a new relationship with something? And that's to me really, you know, what the shadow work is. It's this place of, if I'm not aware of something in myself, it's going to rule my life, right? There's a quote by Jung about whatever is unconscious in me shows up as fate. And so I think that the eclipses feel really faded because it's like a part of their job to uncover or show us something that we didn't see before. Mm -hmm. Um, um, I think that's, so I have a deep appreciation for eclipses. I mean, there's so much you could go into with eclipses. I tend to feel like they are just these, like in the portals or the the few weeks where we have eclipses, they feel like a whole season to me. You know, it's like, <laughs> feels like so much happens in a short amount of time where something, something definitely speeds up an evolution. And mm-hmm. I don't always know exactly why or what. And some people feel eclipses more than others. Some people are born near eclipses. And so I would think they would also have a different relationship to them. Um yeah it's fun to it's fun to think about these moments in time where something becomes uncovered.
0: Mm, yeah, I I love that. Thank you so much for explaining that because I think I haven't heard anyone explain eclipses that way and it it makes a lot of sense, you know. And I think also when there is another eclipse we can pay attention to the unconscious parts of ourselves that are that are coming out and and just be contemplative about that. So Thank you, and Rebecca, I think I probably should have started off with this question, but <laughs> I think i <laughs> so we might be like t- you know retracing a little bit, but um for those who are new to astrology, I think it would be really great to just dive into the basics of what does it mean to have a sun sign, a rising, and a moon because I think those are like the top the three big ones that um shape your personality or shape who you, you know your soul. And what does that, Yeah, what does it mean? Maybe you can talk to us a little bit about that and, and the natal chart.
1: Yeah. Um, and I don't, I think the timing is perfect because, you know, it's um, it's all a little abstract when it comes to astrology sometimes. So, <laughs> um,
0: yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, a lot of people tend to get more and more familiar with their rising, their sun and the moon. And obviously those are, I tend to see it as these are three areas of your personality. You kind of jump around between, depending on the situation, depending on who you're talking to um, a different part of you is going to light up, right. Depending on what you're doing. So when you're more at home, it might be more like the moon that comes alive. So during, especially shelter in place, you know, people's parts of their moon tend to get more active. What is the way we process emotions? What are the emotions that we're not paying attention to? That's the role of the moon. Um, the feelings we feel the most often. Um, and that tends to be kind of the innermost core of someone's chart is like, you have to go through a few layers to get there um, and then the sun seems to be more of, you know, what lights you up? What makes you feel like yourself? Um, I laugh at a lot of horoscopes cause it's like how people want to be seen. That's why people get so attached to their sun sign, right? They're like, this is the part of you I want you to see. But of course in my brain, I'm like, I know what's going on under the surface. Like there's a lot more than what you're wanting to show. And so the sun tends to be, yeah, what lights you up, but also, you know, what is the way you want to be seen in the world as well? Mm. Um, and then of course the planets and asteroids touching the sun tend to feed and nourish that sense of self, um, or make you feel more shiny when maybe you've been spending a little bit too much time in your moon zone. What's going to, you know, feed your life force again. That's more of the sun, mm. the solar sense of self. Um, what has you stay orbited in yourself? That's the sun. Um, And then the rising, I kind of went in backwards order. Usually I'd start with like the rising and go inward. But um, the rising is, you know, more of what is this gateway into your chart? It's the horizon line. So if you were born around sunrise, if you're looking at your chart, your sun would be near what's called the rising or the line facing, um, I guess it'd be facing east or left if you were looking at your chart. Um, and so this line is more of, yeah, what are, what is kind of an automatic way of being in the world when you maybe don't feel fully comfortable with someone, maybe you're on a first date or at a networking event. Some people's charts have like a really outgoing rising sign and then a more introverted sun or moon. And so you really get to see these different layers of how people relate when you kind of look at all three of those together.
0: Mm, And it's interesting. I think, um, you know, we spoke about this for my chart, but there could be tension between, your, mm-hmm. uh, sun, sun, which I'm a Taurus, but then I have a Aquarius moon. So it, you know, those are, it feels very different, uh, ways of interpreting the world. <laughs> so yeah. there's always been a little bit of tension. I think we spoke about that, which I think is super interesting because I, I didn't recognize that or realize that, um, until our talk.
1: Yeah. I, and I love the tensions, right? I think to me, what makes me kind of fall in love with people, especially if they're looking at their chart is like those tensions, you know, like where, where are we expecting someone to be a certain way? And then when we look a little bit deeper that there's, you know, we think about Taurus and like kind of the sweetness and the relationality that comes from a lot of Taurus energy. And then Aquarius moon, which tends to be more of like, I don't really need anyone. And I'm kind of, you know, (laughs) craving more alone time. And so how can this need for relational that lights you up with your Sun and this need that balances you of freedom being with your moon? Um, I think that's where the real kind of alchemy and magic happens is when we, we see these points of tension.
0: Mm, Yeah. Um, so Rebecca, you focus on the intersection of so many modalities like astrology, etymology and mythology. And I'm wondering, I mean, that's why I think you and your perspective is so unique. I, I haven't seen anyone bring all these modalities together like you do. And so, I'm just wondering if you could tell us how these all fit together and just how it shapes your perspective with the work that you do.
1: You know, I I feel like I just kind of want to thank you for even like seeing that complexity (laughs) in what I do because I, you know, so much of when you talk about being an astrologer, it's kind of like, oh, you know, it kind of ends there. And I do feel like there's so much more going on for me around what archetypes are that is, you know, it's mythologies, it's the way we experience language. Um, And so I really see kind of these intersections as um, places where we're just trying to uncover more of what's there. And for me, all those things do that. Right. With etymology, we're trying to figure out, like, what is the meaning behind a word Um, with mythology? It's similarly it's like what what is this message that's kind of symbolically being shown to us? Um, I guess I'm like living into living in a Scorpio geodetic area of Northern California. (laughs) I just, I'm like, what's under it? Um, But that's so much of my own chart is this, you know, I present outwardly as, you know, like funny and maybe like a little quirky and like nice. Um, But what's really going on is just a lot of desire to like get deeper and go under Um, and so it feels really good for someone to, I think, see that part of me because I don't feel like that's often the way that people first notice about my business and about what I'm up to. Hmm.
0: Yeah. I, I feel like I do see that layer. I think there's a lot of, um, layers and complexities underneath (laughs) for sure, which is what attracted me to your work. I was, I just, you know, fell into the rabbit hole of reading all the work that you published on your site and, uh, was just Totally bought in. So, again, for those who are listening, you know, check out the site. We'll leave it in the show notes. And Rebecca, you've worked with the book "Women Who Run with the Wolves." And correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that you also run uh, circles with other women on this work. And so, I wanted to ask, why is this book so important to you, and why is it so important to so many women? I mean, I think a lot of people in the Bay Area have read the book. I read it maybe four or five years ago. Uh, but it's, it's, you know, dense. There's a com- lot of complexity there. Um, so I'm just curious, like, why did you choose that book? Cause for me, I, you know, I think it's one of the hardest books to actually unravel. And um, so I'm curious, like why, why you chose that book? And then also what kind of work you do with the book?
1: Hmm. Yeah, I, it's, it's funny. Cause I remember buying that book maybe 10 years ago and then not touching it, you know, for several years, it was just kind of this thing. But a lot of my graduate school work, a lot of the research and a lot of the, the philosophies I was pulled to, you know, were just so much more depth psychology oriented. You know, it was more about Jungian studies and um, Marion Woodman or um, these depth psychologists that I felt like were doing such an amazing job of like unpeeling, especially the human experience. And I remember picking up that book and really feeling like, oh, she's, you know, this closer pinkola Estes is really speaking to Um, the depth of soul that women experience and how is that experience different, especially women of a certain type. You know, for me, it's women who tend to be questioning the role that we're playing in society, you know, questioning like, what is this version of woman that I feel I'm supposed to be? That's like always nice and is valued for just the way that I look or my value declines with age or, you know, really looking at these narratives and And so that book for me is like, how do we push back against what it means to be wild? And for me, it's not about necessarily eroticism or running through the woods barefoot. It's like, how can we really challenge these structures that we're put into? Um, And for me, that's why the book was so powerful. Um, And so I I had groups with um, a therapist. We did like a book and we would kind of look at these different themes and mythologies for several years with small groups of women. And it was amazing. Um, it was really sweet. And then she had a private practice and it was just ending up being really hard to kind of do group work, um, and our own businesses and everything else. But it was just, I so treasure those times for several years of being in groups of women and really, you know, getting to explore how wildness shows up in different people and how wildness kind of reveals the next layer of evolution. I think for so many of us.
0: Wow. And why do you call yourself the wild witch of the West? Where does that come from? <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, if I'm really honest, it just came to me one night at like, it was like 4 AM the witching hour. And, um, I just remember waking up and in a haze, I wrote down next to me in bed, like wild witch of the West. And I had no idea what that was. Um, and then it started to become obvious like, Oh, this is my business name. At that point, I wasn't even an astrologer. Um, I didn't have a business. I was, you know, I, most of my background is in like marketing and PR and, uh, film, pub, film publicity and then going to grad school. So I, it's like a, it was a name that I was living into and I really didn't know what it was. But when I look at it now, I just feel so kind of moved by like, this is what I, you know, this is what I'm moving towards. Um, and I still don't know fully what it is. But for me, the wildness is about, you know the the parts of me it's like my initiation into being a witch is the part of me that's willing to say like i don't really want to play these roles and i want to go deeper and i'm getting less and less good at the niceties <laughs> <laughs> um and that my power is an exploring power and for me for me my power lies in my ability to just like name what i am noticing and being willing to be uncomfortable and that was something that i keep kind of sticking to and something i still really value is having people in my life and being in situations where what's valued is not being comfortable, but like having difficult conversations and, um, you know, the real intimacy and real connection comes from that discomfort. Mm. Um, and so I think then the witchy part just kind of came on of like, I, you know, it feels obvious to me. There's something, especially my Jewish lineage that feels very witchy Polish grandmothers and, um, I definitely feel like my mom is incredibly intuitive and magical and just didn't really contact that part of her. And I kind of feel like there's something in me ancestrally that wants to claim that word. Mm. Um, I know it definitely makes some people nervous. I think it still makes my dad very uncomfortable in the, in the, <laughs> you know, the holiday letter every year. I think they still don't really know. They don't ever name my business name. So about that. <laughs> um, and then the West piece, I think is just, you know, I moved West. I was grew up in, I was born on the East coast. I, you know, lived in Colorado for most of my life. Um, and then I just kept moving West. And then I ended up in California about more than 10 years ago. And for me, that movement West is also about the like rebellious pioneering spirit of how people, you know, granted colonizers that I don't support, but that that process was also how, you know, the United States was colonized was this movement West of like, there has to be something more, you know, in this mentality of like, what's next, what's, um, what's new. Um, and so I see that part of myself as well. Mm, that wow. was a
0: long answer you asked me. Well, you obviously put a lot of thought into the name and I'm just, you know, taken aback by how much thought was put in, into it. I actually thought it was, it came from like, the, you know, uh, the wizard of Oz or so some, there's something like with that, um, you know, that could have inspired it, but hearing, uh, all the, the different, um, points that brought you to that name is really beautiful and profound. And I, I loved, um, your reflections on, on not having your family name it, because even with this podcast, you know, my dad asked me the other day, can't you talk about something, you know, other subjects like politics? And I was like, uh, it's a podcast on spirituality and wellness, but you know, I'll take that into consideration. So it's, it's interesting that I think like we're kind of this first generation, um, shepherding this, you know, mystical uh, this mystical piece of our past that I think we haven't really owned. Um, mm-hmm. and it's across all cultures. I, I really do feel like we're, we're moving into a new space. So thank you for explaining that. And I actually want to revisit the women who run with the wolves. Um, and I want to talk about if you, re- if you remember, cause I know it's been a couple years since you've done these groups, but if you remember some of the myths in the book that may have impacted you, um, or where you see yourself in these myths?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So I, you know, I still read the book. I obviously not as often, but I think I've probably read that book, God, like 12 or 13 times. I mean, I just, it's like etched in my, my brain, but I remember two of the myths that always show up for me are, you know, skeleton woman, which I think is just always one that people mention where it's, you know, it's about a woman who like loses herself. And for me, it was this, I, it was so much about desire where she's, you know, pulled, she's a skeleton. She's like, there's nothing left of her. And she gets pulled out and out of the water by a fisherman. And he's terrified of her. And I think of that as so much of like my own feminine. <laughs> that's like hungry, you know, for this like deepness of love and connection. And then people, <laughs> you know, running from me as I'm like bobbing <laughs> up on the ocean, terrifying as a skeleton. Um, and so, you know, and then he's like, oh, you know, maybe I shouldn't be so afraid. And they're by the fire and he tries to warm her and cover her. And then you know, he, she drinks his tears as he's resting and then becomes, um, a human, um, and a woman. And that story just always, I mean, even talking about now, it's like, it's so emotional to think about like the hunger of the things that we want and desire in the world and how empty we get when we don't know how to get them or don't know where we're going. Um, and so I love that. That one always stands out to me. I mean, there's so many different ways to interpret it. It could also like the life death life cycle of, of just being human, right. Where things die and they come back to life and then they die again. Um, and then the other one I always think about is, um, seal skin, soul skin, where someone steals a woman's, uh, it's like these mermaids or seals and someone steals a pelt. Um, and when someone steals the pelt, they have to go with this person. And so it's again, these stories of, men inter you know, kind of interacting with women. Um and in this myth, you know, this man is like, well, you have to stay with me. I have your pelt. And he's kind of like blackmailing her. It's a real power dynamic. And then she's she's finally like she chooses herself even over a son and a husband and says like I have to go back to where I'm from. Um and there's something so moving to me about her just following her soul. Um, and you know not being trapped in this dynamic where there's obviously unhealthy patterns of power happening mm-hmm. um and that kind of choosing point it feels like for women and a lot of people in general like how do i choose myself and how do i choose relationships and where do those inter- the, where do those meet um so yeah those are the two myths i mean god there's so many of them but those are the ones that always stand out to me the most
0: mm. I I remember skeleton woman. I don't remember the second one, but I I got full body chills as you were relating them um, because I think every woman can see a part of herself in those stories. Like there's just like this this heartbrokenness underneath it all that I think we've all experienced and like it's just a part of life, right? The the cycles. Yeah. So beautiful. I, I think we could have a whole conversation and podcast interview just on women who run with the wolves, but that would require me rereading it <laughs> because <laughs> it's been <laughs> it's been way too long. Um I I did the last time I read it was actually at Burning Man. Um, and I had a little mm-hmm. bit of a stage in the middle of the desert rereading one of the myths. So it was a quite a profound uh reading. <laughs> Rebecca can you tell us about your essay, The Never-Ending Hero's Journey? Um, I'd love to just, I think that the Joseph Campbell Hero's Journey arc is so important, and I love your perspective on this never-ending um, hero's journey.
1: Yeah. Well, it's it's so fascinating to me because I wrote that as a uh, an academic paper in my graduate school program. That was the first paper I wrote in my program. And the first class I took was it was just, you know, Joseph Campbell's hero's journey. That was the name of the whole class. Um, And it feels so potent that that, I remember I wrote that, that essay and that paper about the never ending story. It was such like a popular movie when I was growing up. And I remember always being so moved by it and not really understanding why and how perfectly it really tracked the hero's journey that Joseph Campbell spoke about. And You know, if I if I rewrote it now, I would definitely change a lot because there's a lot of, you know, academic critiques of Joseph Campbell's hero's journey. Um, And I really appreciate them. You know, it's there's a lot of feminist critiques of them in particular. And so I kind of have this fantasy of like, what would it look like to rewrite, you know, Maureen Murdoch? And there's a lot of academics and depth psychologists who have rewritten um the hero's journey to reflect maybe more of what it means to the feminine process. And I keep thinking that for me it's not so gendered as it is that there are certain people who who are just going to have a different coming back to themselves, whether that's because they have trauma or whether, you know, they're living under patriarchy. Um, that changes the way that we're gonna find our individuation. Um, and so I'm really interested now in kind of what is a different version of that that you know, I think we're all kind of living into also collectively. Um, so yeah, that was really written after I just knew that there was something around the way that he presented the hero's journey that I was like, Oh, I, I feel this. Right. And now as I'm looking at it, I feel like there's a lot missing and I still am not entirely clear what I would change, but there's a lot of really great critiques out there about it now that I also appreciate.
0: Yeah. It's interesting. It's, it's definitely come to be somewhat controversial in a lot of feminist movements because I've heard mm-hmm. people say that the hero's journey is inherently patriarchal. You know, yeah. there's someone has, you have to overcome an antagonist or something that is uh, a conflict in your life. And, and it's interesting, you know, I was, and I also re- I read this book many years ago, it's called the wizard of us. And it was about uh, Dorothy's uh, hero's journey. And it was one of the few stories that have been created and produced in our Western world that didn't have a, um, you know, a violence attached to overcoming the Mm. conflict. You know, she was she actually, you know, collaborated with all these other people to get to. Um, oh my gosh, what is it called again? The Emerald city, you know, and she didn't, she didn't need to kill, like to kill anyone. She didn't need to fight anyone. Like it was, it was kind of just like being, um, rather than doing. But I have also heard this described that the, the hero's journey is inherently patriarchal and more masculine because there is so much of doing rather than being and attracting what you need in order to overcome things. So, I mean, there's, there's probably a lot there, but, um, Yeah, I've just been I've been really fascinated on the hero's journey and and what it what is a more like relevant way to move forward on the hero's journey that doesn't feel like we're just repeating the same, you know, same story (laughs) over and over and over again. And um, and also just a a quick side note, when I was uh, in film school, I remember that, you know, we did this assessment on movies and our professor once said, show me uh, name a movie that does not have the hero's journey. And it was really difficult to find one because every single Mm -hmm. I would say 95 percent of movies that have been created all follow that kind of um, archetype because it just for whatever reason, it just uh, it's entertaining for us. And we understand it as humans. We like understand the symbology in a way that I think is not as understood in the more abstract space. And I think that's been a comparison, like things that are not hero's journey are a little bit more
1: abstract, less goal oriented, but. Yeah, yeah, that's a really, yeah, that's a really beautiful description. And I was wondering too, you know, there's one movie I actually watched or I remember watching it and being like, this is a different hero's journey. Um, and it was the Swedish movie. I wrote about it around Halloween cause I got obsessed with all, like I wrote a post for the, like one of the local media companies about like, what are some of the witchiest films to watch around Halloween that like feminist witchy films. <laughs> and I remember the first time I saw this movie called Thelma, um, made in Sweden And it, it it was, it felt so different, something about the way that the character, but it was more abstract. And so that makes a lot of sense to me Mm -hmm. that it's like, if it's not going to be that goal oriented, it has more of a confusion around like time warps and kind of different things that are harder to track. Um, but yeah, I forget you're a filmmaker too. I mean, it's like, what do you not do? Yasmin? I don't (laughs) understand.
0: (laughs) Oh, thank you, Rebecca. Um, and I want to also Rebecca lean into where you learned your philosophy from, like, how did you, how did you become the wild witch of the West? I mean, you spoke a little bit about the, like the, the name, but I'd love to understand your journey, how you ended up in grad school. Um, you know, just how did you, how did you come to this place?
1: Yeah. Um, how did I, you know, I, I studied philosophy in undergrad, and I, it was more, it was very like moralistic philosophy. You know, it was very like, this is how you decide what's right and wrong. These are some of the themes of old white men like Aristotle and Kant and that sort of thing. And I remember the professor saying that women would always be better at philosophy than men because we're, there's like a, a different openness. And he always used feminine pronouns, which I found so interesting. Every example, he always used she or her. Um, and it was life changing to me. And so even though it was my minor, I studied journalism and then I did TV reporting and like PR and there was always this kind of in the back of my heart of like, I, you know, there's just this need to know, right? Like there's this satiate, this curiosity that just like, can't be satiated. And so then I finally, you know, was like, I'm ready to be a hippie in San Francisco and, you know, move to the Bay. And so I started a grad school program in philosophy and it was still a lot of old white men that we studied. Um, but these were mystical white men. Um, and they, they were, you know, there were a lot of critiques of the feminist versions too, that I appreciated. And so I kind of feel like my philosophy and my way of thinking was so shaped by my grad school program. I, I feel ever indebted to studying at that place. Um, even though it was all of my teachers were old white men, I, I felt like it was the first time I'd come into contact with philosophy in a way that was, um, soul making, like that you could really feel your soul be expanded by it and talking about ideas and cosmology theories of how the universe was created. And I just remember every time I walked out of class, I just felt like alive, um, and enchanted with, being on earth, which is something that I, you know, I often feel, feel a bit like an alien taking notes about (laughs) how to be human and being around people who I felt like were asking the same questions I was. And so for me, it was the first time I think I felt a sense of belonging and meeting other people with such similar philosophies. And so I don't know how I got the philosophy other than I, I think there was just a part of my being that always craved knowing. And I finally found a place where like, I could satiate that um, and now it just feels like it's a, it's a part of me. And I probably am not as curious and as interested as in topics. Now I almost feel kind of stuck in my way of thinking. It's like I left a philosophy program and suddenly I was like already a know-it-all, but now I'm even more of a know-it-all. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah. So.
0: <laughs> so fascinating, interesting. I love that you were a philosophy major. I've always made this statement that I think some of the most interesting people are people that study philosophy in undergrad, um, mm-hmm. and, and I, and I think, you know, um, obviously your work in PR and TV probably were super helpful to the stage that you're on right now. Cause Wild Witch of the West is a platform really. I mean, you've got a lot of different, um, modalities and things going on in, in your platform. So. Rebecca, can you maybe tell our listeners a little bit about the themes that have emerged from the clients that you have spent time with? Like what are, you've done this now for so long, you've done, you've read so many charts. What are some things that maybe you see as themes? And then what are some things that surprise you?
1: Um, yeah, I mean, I think that, Sessions always kind of start out the same, (laughs) you know, where someone's like, I want to know about relationships. I want (laughs) to know about money. What's my career, you know, or people just genuinely wanting to get to know themselves better. And so I feel like they always start that way. Um, But then where we go is usually just affirming and affirming the decisions they've already made that make so much sense. Um, I think that's my favorite part is that people come with all these questions but it's often just me kind of acknowledging and reflecting back like you can trust yourself mm. like you're you're doing good i feel like i try to say that just in like <laughs> a really kind of silly way of like you're doing great like you you don't it's like you don't really need me other than to reflect back how great you are and that you're on the right path mm. um i do think the difference can be sometimes where we're talking about timing and someone's trying to decide like when they want to move or maybe when they want to try to get pregnant, that there are phases that kind of allow things to be more ripe is the word I would use. Like the potential is higher at certain times. Um, But I'm always kind of amazed that I usually end up in the same place in the same conversations. I don't know that I've ever had a session. It's very rare that I have sessions where someone doesn't cry I don't think I was like like that. I just think that I know that my style is maybe a little bit more relational um, than other astrologers. Like, I've had sessions before where, you know, maybe 10 years ago, where I just remember they're usually men, male astrologers, like talking at me for like hours. You're like, oh, well, you're like this, and this is how you do things. And you just kind of feeling like they're like not seeing me. It's Mm. not, there's nothing we're co creating. I'm just like a chart, and they're speaking at me. And so, what I'm, really inspired by and working with clients one-on-one is like really wanting to hear them and like, listen in a way where they, you know, feel heard, but also in a way where they can know that they're just going to talk about things and something's going to come up. And that's the point, um, that we end up always getting to where we need to go in those conversations. But I'm often kind of surprised that it's more so much more of just a relational process than it is just a chart process, Mm -hmm. which is what I love about it.
0: Yeah, I remember in our uh, reading, you said, because I said, I don't want to interrupt you. And you said, No, please do. (laughs) You know, I want to hear from you. And I just thought that was really sweet. I definitely felt held and seen. And, and also, you know, there was a conversational element to it, because I agree, I think a lot of times when you're trying to learn a little bit more about yourself through different modalities, there's just like a blanket statement of this is who you are. And, and then you walk away with so many questions that don't get answered. So I just, I really appreciate that.
1: Yeah. I'm glad that that felt good to you. I mean, I know we're both Tauruses, so it's kind of like, I know the relational (laughs) factor is probably important (laughs) either way, but yeah, I know some people kind of want that. Like I can feel where they just like want me to talk at them and they just aren't really a part of it. And I feel like that's not the way that my intuition can really tap into them. Like, I know that in my sessions, a big part of what gives me the intuition, the information they need is, is because of that relationality. Mm. Um, sometimes without it, when I don't feel connected to someone, I just, I can't even barely read the chart. It's like, my brain just goes blank. Like I'm not getting any information. I don't know what to say. And so that's why I know that the relational piece is, is what makes it possible, I guess.
0: Mm, yeah. Rebecca, so last couple of questions, um, what are some books or resources that have inspired you on this path? Like maybe one or two that you could recommend to folks to check out on, it doesn't have to be astrology, uh, but if maybe maybe astrology and wellness or spirituality or some of the other topics and modalities that we've discussed today, like mythology, soul...
1: Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, my teacher who I studied with in graduate school, that was my main motivator to get into astrology. i um, Richard Tarnas. He has an incredible book called cosmos and psyche. And, um, it's really dense. It's kind of hard to read, but it's really where you can break down the archetypes, the planetary archetypes and really think about astrology outside of this lens of just horoscopes. Mm. Um, so I love his work and he wrote it while he was at Esalen, you know, like really tracking the planets. And, um, so his, I mean, also his book, the history of Western mind is amazing. Um, but other books, you know, one of my favorite, uh, (laughs) books is actually by Esther Harding and it's called the way of all women. And she's a depth psychologist. She studied, worked with Carl Jung and like Tony Wolf is that she was kind of Jung's mistress. And I don't want to demean her by saying his mistress. I'd say they, they had a relationship. Um, but these are both women who were in the depth psychology field, you know, a long time ago. And the things they've written are still just so true. I feel to the experience of being a woman. Um, and so I, I really love both their books. And then if you want to get more, I'm, I'm doing more recommendations, but, um, more philosophical, um, Eric Neumann is one of my favorite philosophers who really, you know, is worked with Jung's work, but it's about tracking the evolution of consciousness. And so, so much of my graduate school classes were about these philosophers who were trying to understand the evolution of consciousness. Like, where are we going as humans? What does that tell us? Um, and Eric Neumann and, um, Alfred North Whitehead are two of my favorites. Okay. Amazing. I'll check that out. I didn't know I had so many recommendations. (laughs) (laughs) This is great.
0: I might have to get those titles from you after because I I know folks always ask, like what are the book titles? And sometimes they're not easily uh, findable, I guess, on Amazon. So we'll get those into the show notes. And um, Rebecca, what's sort of like your main takeaway? What do you want to tell people about wellness and moving forward in 2021?
1: I would say that I think astrologically, you know, people want to do a lot of comparisons like the 2020 was supposed to have these like really difficult transits. And so now that we've, you know, done with it, that everything's going to get easier. And, um, I think for me, as astrology is about just having a relationship to something bigger than ourselves. And so we're always changing. There's never going to be like something that's all really easy and all really hard. Um, and I think that's what I'm walking away with for the new year is that as a collective, I think we still have a lot of work to do. Um, and I'm kind of eager for us to all kind of find new ways in our part in that collective awakening. And I don't say awakening in this, you know, kind of like simple spiritual way of like, Oh yeah, we're all changing. But in this like real, you know, this awakening that I know that you're interested in, that's like, what, who would I really need to be? And what junk do I really need to clear in order to be of the most service to this evolution that we're all going through? Mm.
0: Rebecca, you're such an inspiration. I'm so happy for this conversation. Are there any resources that you can point folks to so that they can learn more about you, social media, uh, your website?
1: Uh, yes. Uh, so, my Instagram, uh, Wild Witch of the West. Um, it's a great place. And then my website is wildwitchwest.com, or you can just Google search Wild Witch of the West. Those are both the places to get more information. Um, and I always just welcome if people are on my site and they email me, I have even like a simple question of more resources, I'm I'm always happy to just answer people's questions. It's it's fun for me to be a point of contact and resourcefulness. So
0: Wonderful. Rebecca, thank you so much for your time. This was incredible conversation. I feel like I learned so much and I'm sure that you're going to have a lot of people uh, navigating to your site for a reading um, or more questions. So thank you so much for your time.
1: Yeah. And thank you. Just your your thoughtfulness and intentionality does not just, you know, it's so obvious to me. So thank you for being you.
0: Oh, thank you so much, Rebecca.
1: And for our audience, thanks for joining and for listening.
0: In this episode, we learned about the importance of astrology and the self, mythology and women who run with the wolves with Rebecca Farrar. And you can tune in to Gateways to Awakening, where we host one-on-one conversations with leading experts in wellness and spirituality. Thanks again.